This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 21st, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. MetLife may soon be among institutions tagged as systemically important to the U.S. financial system. But what does systemically important mean? And what value do investors believe that designation confers? Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. He offers his thoughts. So it really is one of the interesting tensions in Dodd-Frank that, uh, you know, Title II of Dodd-Frank is supposed to be the set of tools to end too big to fail. Um, but by contrast, Title I of Dodd-Frank is the set of tools which allows regulators, and in this case, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, to designate firms as too big to fail. So it's, you know, this tension of, well, we're going to say these certain amount of firms are too big to fail. Of course, we're going to label them systemically important. We're not going to call them too big to fail. Um, and then we're going to say we have another process to end that. Uh, and so, by statute, Dodd-Frank says that if you're a bank holding company, which of course would include savings and loans, uh, any sort of depository, that if you're over 50 billion assets, you're automatically in. So, there's that process is already in statute. So, Dodd-Frank passes Citibank systemically important automatically. Uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which to some extent is a beefed up what was before the president's working group. So you used to have a working group of the financial regulators should come to meet and talk about things in the financial markets. And so some of the thinking in Dodd Frank was there wasn't a lot there was a lack of communication, you know, the regulators weren't talking to each other. And of course again, they were. They had a regular working group. We could debate the effectiveness of that. Um, and so what Dodd Frank decided to do is create this thing called the Financial Stability Oversight Council. By statute, it is chaired by the Treasury Secretary, and its members are generally the head of the various regulatory agencies. So, you know, so the Federal Reserve uh, chair is a member, but not the rest of the board members of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the head of the SEC, but not the rest of the Commission, and the same the CFTC and such, are board members for FSOC. And so, what FSOC essentially does is it's supposed to be a Area where where the regulators can have a dialogue in private between each other to identify uh, growing risks in the financial system, as well as identifying which institutions are quote unquote systemically important. After that designation, you you are essentially as a firm referred to the Federal Reserve, and so after you're designated by FSOC as systemically important, what then happens is you are referred to the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve now puts a layer of regulation on you, essentially like you're a bank. And so the Federal Reserve will come in and try to set uh, capital standards for you, try to set safety and soundness standards for you, will, as importantly, examine you as well. Now, one of the big open questions with FSOC has been, in particular on the Federal Reserve side, is, you know, how do we regulate you if you're not a bank? So we know insurance companies are not banks. They're different institutions, for instance. Uh, and so how do you make sure that you're not using a one-size-fits-all? Um, of course, there are broader questions and that FSOC really doesn't have much of a process. The way it, the way it essentially works is uh, they have some public hearings, and then when they decide they want to you know, deliberate, they close the doors, you know, throw the reporters out, uh, and have private deliberations and decide who they think is going to be systemically important. Uh, members of Congress and others, uh, certainly in the financial community elsewhere, have repeatedly, since Dodd-Frank was passed, demanded that FSOC um, promulgate rules and spell out a process. So, for instance, there really is no guideline. So, so which firms uh, are, I suppose, on the bubble in terms of maybe they're not going to get this designation, maybe they do get this designation, and what value 
does having that designation have for a firm? And so, again, we'll start out with, again, the, the, the banks. Big banks are automatically in by statute. You've had three firms that have been designated since Dodd-Frank. That's GE Capital, Prudential, which is a big insurer, and, of course, AIG, who everybody remembers. Um, currently under deliberation is whether uh, insurance company MetLife would be uh, included. Uh, and so, after Dodd-Frank was passed, MetLife, that who did have a bank subsidiary, sold that off so they could get out of it. They thought they were going to be clear from that. Um, and then there's a deliberation going on about whether they would be pulled in or not. Uh, and so if you are too big to fail, perceived by too big to fail, the real advantage in the marketplace is that creditors believe you're going to be rescued. So you can generally borrow at a lower rate. And so you often hear this, well, you know, that's not really a big impact because nobody wants to be an FSOC. And what that argument ignores is that people who would really want to be an FSOC that would benefit from lower borrowing costs are already in the banks. Insurance companies, for instance, do not let do not fund themselves by debt in the same way. They fund themselves by you get an insurance policy, you pay the premiums. And so there certainly is a, a perverse risk that once one is designated as too big to fail and your funding costs are declined because of that, that you actually have an incentive to become more leveraged than you were before. So I certainly am somebody who worries that uh, FSOC might have the perverse outcome of encouraging non-banks to become more highly leveraged and more risky, because that's the benefit of being in. Of course, the cost of being in is you get additional Federal Reserve regulation. We are where we are with respect to that system. How do you unwind a system and take us back to a place where essentially you don't get there's no, there is no implicit guarantee? So I tend to think of this as that you know there's there's certainly a debate in, in the economics literature and the regulatory literature over whether too big to fail is something inherent in the economics of a firm. You know that you're just big, you fail, or you're too interconnected, uh, and your failure to fail you would have all these systemic implications versus. You're viewed as too big to fail because of the political system. You know, the, the politics of it are you're going to get bailed out because regulators throw money at failing firms to cover up you know, their own mistakes as well as for other, other purposes. My view is more the latter. I don't think you can really end too big to fail without tying the hands of the regulators. So that means, you know, repealing 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, which allows them to rescue anybody under the sun, uh, getting rid of the exchange stabilization fund at Treasury, is a long list of other items where. You know, essentially, we need to take away big discretionary pots of money from the regulators because they will use these pots of money to essentially bail out firms. Now, there are other ways you have to get at this, too. You know, I think it would be helpful, um, given the discretion that bank regulators have, we really are in a situation where personnel is policy. So it would be nice if we put an emphasis on not having Federal Reserve chairs and Treasury secretaries who think bailouts are good. You know, because they're far more likely to do them. Uh, I think even people who don't like bailouts might engage in them, but you don't want to start from the premise of, you know, it's all good. You know, it's interesting. Um, a study was done that when Tim Geithner was confirmed as Treasury Secretary, the stock value of systemically important banks went up. And, and again, it was a market reaction that this guy will bail us out if we get in trouble. And you know, I would say that was probably a pretty good bet on their part. Uh, and so you do need to change the dynamic. The signal needs to be sent to market participants that rescues aren't going to be forthcoming. I do think the most important way, and maybe the ultimate way we'll ever do this, is by actually putting a too big to fail firm out of business until you imposing losses on creditors. And again, 
it, you know, to push back on sort of the the Hank Paulson version of the world, you often hear that well, you know, we did impose losses. Losses were imposed on shareholders often. Uh, management was often fired. But for any financial institution, ninety plus percent of the funding is debt. Uh, and of course, the incentive of, of shareholders is to gamble. So, simply imposing lo- losses on shareholders will never ever be sufficient for ending too big to fail. You really have to have a system that credibly imposes losses on creditors, and that's only the way you're going to get market discipline. And it also has to be a system that you know it's going to be used. For instance, Title II of Dodd Frank does set up a resolution mechanism that, in theory, could impose losses on creditors. Will never happen. You know, par- partly because of the discretion the regulators have, they have too many choices. So, rather than the current Dodd Frank approach of how do we give regulators more tools, the answer actually has to be how do we give regulators less tools. Mark Calabria is director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.